I have listed in the outline, uh, you'll notice a bunch of different cross-references we could turn to. It's partially because I hadn't made up my mind yet which one I wanted to turn to. So turn to Colossians 1. <laughs> the second of those. Uh, those other ones are there for your edification uh, and later reflection or for you to, you know, double check my work, but <laughs> to see if these actually do have to do with prayer or if I'm just making it up. Um, Colossians 1, and uh, it's verses 9 through 14. Uh, but I'm going to start reading that section in verse 3 just to give us the flavor. But the body of what we're going to talk about is in uh, 9 through 14. So this is uh, Biblical Theology of Prayer in the New Testament, part 2. <laughs> the Paul part. So, Colossians 1, and I'm going to start reading in verse 3. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid before you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphrasus, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit." And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So uh, that whole section, verse 3 through verse 14, is one long written-down prayer of Paul. And I think it's important to know that he doesn't just pray this prayer and then write the letter and send it off he chooses to include this prayer in the letter that he writes to the people as a way of encouragement to them. One thing to note about this letter is Paul is, is referring to a group of people, most of which he's probably not met. In verse uh, 3 and 4, we kind of get this idea. Paul says, we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ. So he's implying that he hasn't personally witnessed it which I think is an important thing to know because up to this point, we're forming a big picture theology of prayer. And now with Paul, we can kind of zoom that in and ask the question, okay, how do we pray in light of all of these other things? And the first thing is we, we can pray for people. We can intercede for people, even if we haven't met them. Because the commonality is not us meeting them. The commonality is the same commonality that the Lord's Prayer starts with. It's that we share a common father. It's our father who is in heaven. Therefore, we can pray for anyone else who's under that same boat. Our Father in heaven bonds us together with the family, and so we can pray for their behalf, or we can pray on their behalf and for their benefit. So since we've heard of your faith, I'm reading in verse 4, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid before you in heaven. And that same hope that is laid before them in heaven is reflected later in that same text, where it says in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, us being transferred from darkness into light, 
is part of what he implores earlier, that there's this kind of hope that these people share together. And it's from those two pieces that we're going to try to frame verse 9 through verse 14. And, and really asking the question, what does the New Testament believe about prayer? Paul being a New Testament author, what does it believe about prayer? So far we've seen straight from Jesus what he believes about prayer. And now in 9 through 14, we're going to ask the question more specifically, what does Paul believe about prayer? It says, first and foremost in verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So you have this idea of praying without ceasing. This idea of continually praying, not for ourselves, praying for others. In this case, praying for the Colossian church. And notice what they're asking for, for the church. They're petitioning Again, specific things of God for him to do. Asking that you may be, first and foremost, filled with knowledge of his will. And what that means is, in spiritual wisdom and in understanding. So he's asking them for, to understand the things of God. Secondly, the reason he's asking for them to have this kind of knowledge. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And he links the idea of, knowing God more to living a more holy life. And I think that's an important thing to know because we often talk about living our Christian life and understanding and knowledge as if they're kind of two separate domains that operate independently of each other. And that's just not true. What you know about God is directly reflected in how you live out your life. And so when Paul prays for this church that he's never met before, he prays for them to know things about God, know better theology, and he prays not just for their knowledge, he prays for their theology to be a real kind of substantive theology that leads to living a more holy life. I don't think anyone knows of anything more unsavory in the Christian church than someone who has really good theology and a really rotten way of living. And those things are automatically incompatible. And so theology bears with our living and Paul prays for both of those things to be true because really one would be incomplete without the other. You can't, do, uh, you can't live a holy life, by the way, either, unless you know things about God. That's another, another way we could phrase that. They're, they're, they're inseparable ideas that he's linking together. Verse 11, he's, he has this kind of like ongoing phrase. Paul loves his run on sentences. But in verse 11, he kind of, you know, keeps going with that. He says, being strengthened in all power. Well, where's the power coming from? He's praying for them to be strengthened by the power of God, which is manifest in the Holy Spirit, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy. So he's asking him to have power, to have a kind of staying power, to be able to endure suffering, endure hardship, having endurance, which is similar to what I pointed out uh, in the Lord's Prayer, where we say, lead us not into temptation, meaning don't lead us into a kind of place where we wouldn't be able to endure in that kind of location. Don't lead us into a place where we can't endure, where we can't have patience, where we can't have joy. And that joy piece links back to actually Proverbs 30, where that, uh, the person who wrote the proverb says, Give me what I need so that I don't profane your name. So I don't become discontent. So I don't become someone who forgets you. And joy is a piece of prayer. When we pray for others, we're praying for joy, satisfaction, not for gluttony and not for poverty. We're praying for this middle ground where we can be joyful as Christians. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Why are you giving thanks to the Father, Paul? Because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. These people are converted believers that Paul is writing to and about. And the first thing he thanks God for is for their conversion. That's not something that Paul departs from after he hears about it. So we, we can ask the question, okay, if we were supposed to pray without ceasing, if we're supposed to do all these kinds of things, doesn't that mean we, you know, once we've thanked God for this one thing, we can kind of move on? 
And in prayer, there's this, there's this component, we're going to talk about it later, of regularly petitioning God for things. And while I think that it's true that we regularly petition God for things, I think it's also true that we regularly remind ourselves of the things we're thankful for by thanking God for them again. By thanking God for the fact that it is a reality. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father because he's qualified you. He, he gives thanks to the Father, not because of the Father's ongoing sanctification of them. He prays that that is a reality. He hears that it's a reality. But the reason he gives thanks is because he has qualified them to share in the inheritance. That's what he's thanking God for on an ongoing kind of basis. Verse 13 says, what does that mean that he's uh, given us this share of the inheritance? He, he says, he's delivered us from darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in that, you have Paul's understanding of the kingdom of God, and you have that rooted right back into what Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. These are not two separate prayers. These are prayers that are bouncing right off each other. They're talking about the same things. Verse 13 says, he delivers us from darkness into the kingdom of light. So what's happening is the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, is happening, and Paul is thanking God that it is happening. He's thanking God that the kingdom is coming, that the will is being done, that more people are coming from darkness into light, into the kingdom. And as more people come, that kingdom comes forth. And it gets more and more realized on the earth. So what Paul thanks God for is the very thing that the disciples petition God for in the Lord's Prayer and that we continue to petition God for. But just because it hasn't been fully realized doesn't mean we can't thank God for the progress that it is making. I think that's an important thing to note. Because sometimes it's easy for us to not thank God until it's fully exactly how we expected it to be. And then we'll thank him when it's fully complete. But we thank him not only for the completed thing when it's done, but also for the ongoing process of that. Also, even before it started, we thank him for the fact that he heard us to begin with. All of those are reasons to be thankful to God. And Paul modeled all of that. He says, we thank God the Father for you. We pray for you. But while we're praying for you, we also thank God that he's accomplished this thing to begin with. He doesn't separate out asking and thanking. And in fact, it's, it's actually hard to, if you were to try to cut lines, there's not a clean place to cut this. He says, sometimes he's thanking, sometimes he's praying, sometimes he's saying, I'm praying for you, and I'm thanking God for you about this thing as well. It's really hard to, to draw lines in this prayer. And I think the reason is because our thanks and our petitions ought to go back and forth on each other like that. So many times, I think, if we segment prayer into its component parts, which is helpful, by the way. I think it's really helpful. I think the, one of the definitions we came up with was the Acts method of prayer. But if you separate prayer up into its component parts too much, and you almost separate them out from each other, what you end up with is something that's less than what the total was to begin with. It's almost like if you have the value of a car, and then what you do is you take the tires and you have this in one part, and you take the engine, you have it in another part, you have the doors in a different part. All of those things separately are not really worth as much as when they're all assembled together and working and functioning properly. It's the same thing with prayer. Prayer works when all of these things are blended together. You have these distinct parts, but they all need to be working together off of each other. So we adore, we thank, we confess our sins, and we, we ask for supplication. But we don't do those things like a recipe book. That makes sense. We can't, we can't separate those things out too much from one another. So that's, I think, Paul understanding prayer. Now, uh, I'll say a few words just on this briefly. One of the things in the New Testament that's difficult, and people have a difficult time reconciling, is when Paul prays, it seems to be very much like he's praying because he knows these people. He's praying because he's a missionary. He's praying because this is like his full-time job to do this. And we have a difficult time reconciling how we're supposed to do what Paul says when he says pray without ceasing when we live very busy lives. In the, in the West, we live very busy lives. We book our schedules full. 
And we, we do that willfully because we like to, we like to do it. That's, that's human nature in us. And what I want to point out to you is that it's, it's not like Paul has a clear slate. Paul is not doing nothing and just writing letters all the time. Most of the time he's writing letters, he can't even write for himself. He needs a scribe to write on his behalf. If you want to know how occupied his time was, he needs someone to write down the letter as he's dictating it to them. Because while he's in prison, he's also busy praying. He's also busy witnessing to the guards. He's also busy getting beat up and thrown in prison. All of those things are things that Paul books his time with. And yet, he finds time to pray. And not only to pray, but to let people know that he's praying for them and how he's praying for them. And I think there's much for the church to learn in the world today about that. Honestly, I think this is one of the one of the wondrous joys of uh, being part of uh, Rua Church is we do the we do the prayer cards, but not only that, but you're supposed to also like follow up with that person and check in and see how they're doing. And there's something about when someone reaches out to you and texts you to see how things are going and lets you know they're praying for you and they're praying for the specific things that you said you needed mm-hmm. that I think really reflects the heart posture of what Paul gets at here, which is that it's, he's not just saying I pray for you, you know, almost like I hope you're doing well which I think is a lot of times how we use it uh, in the West. Paul lists specific things he's praying for. He lists things that he's praying for that follows up with things that they struggled with in the past. And he lists, not only is he continually praying, but he's also thanking God for the progress that they've made. And all of this is being done in one fluid body of thought of prayer. So not only does it model for us how we should pray for other people, I think it also models for us how we let other people know about how we're praying for them. And that's not something we boast in. That's not something we, we, we do to, to flaunt our spirituality in some way. But in a real sense, it's, a, it's an encouragement to the body that they know that you've got them in prayer. And when you know someone has you and is covering you in prayer, there's a real encouragement there. I'm sure that the Colossian church was relieved to hear that Paul was interceding for them regularly on their behalf. And so that's something that we should also engage in as a church. That's something we should engage in as a body, not even dividing between local congregations, but also praying for the leaders of other local bodies of churches Praying for, the, praying for the leaders of churches that even we wouldn't necessarily theologically agree with 100%. But you're praying for the body of God that is present in the city that we live in. And I think all of that is true and stuff that we can learn from in Paul.